This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Many years ago, my daughter uh, loved, like like most kids, loved watching uh, Disney movies. And so many years ago, uh, she had, uh, we had this, this VCR TV combo. I know it seems like a really long time since we had those kinds of devices, but Google it if you don't know what it is. She had this VCR TV combo and we would use these old, we'd buy these 30 cent uh, Disney movies for them to watch. And she, it was in her room. And so one night getting ready for bed, the kids should already have been asleep. And it's maybe nine or 10 o'clock getting ready to retire for the night. And in walking up the stairs, <clears throat> I see uh, the light from under her bedroom kind of emanating from under, from the, from the threshold of her room. And I'm just thinking, like, there's no way in the world this girl is up right now. She should be asleep. She probably was, I don't know, four or five years old. And I walk into the room, and she immediately jumps up and just doesn't know what else to do. She's caught red-handed. She's watching movies when she should be asleep. And the only thing that occurred to her to say wasn't, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I, I, I need to do better. The first thing that came in her mind was the baby did it, which she was referring to her one-year-old brother in his crib in the adjoining room. Her first thought was the baby did it. Listen, from the time that we are born, we have an accountability problem. From the time that we come into this earth we have an issue with owning our stuff. We have an issue with being called out by our, our, our stuff and, and or called out for our stuff. And the times when we don't hit the mark, we don't want to believe that it's something that we caused. So we want to blame somebody else. It's something that we do. We don't want to take accountability. We have an accountability issue. We always have. One of the things that's, that's so interesting about how we like to react to being called out or react to a lack of accountability is we begin to get angry at the people who call us out. We get angry at the people who will point out all the ways that we might be missing the mark, all the ways that us missing the mark may have harmed other people. And so when people call that out and they may say, listen, as long as you continue to do this thing that's missing the mark, I'm going to have to pull back from commiserating with you. I'm going to have to pull back from being able to, to trust you. I'm gonna to have to pull back from doing business with you or patronizing uh, your establishment, whatever it is, that's, that's kind of the approach, right? It's, I don't know, if you're not gonna take steps to change, I'm pulling back. That should, that's normal accountability. But the way we respond to those kinds of folks is we create very lazy monikers, these lazy tropes to apply in order to absolve ourselves of responsibility. So what do we say? Or we say, you're just a part of cancel culture. You're just a person that just wants to cancel. And so instead of dealing with the actual issue, they deal with the response to the issue and say things like, the real problem in this world is cancel culture. The real problem in this world is people just want to cancel. People don't want to have discussions. So let me just begin with saying, there is a very unhealthy definition for what's happening right now, what we see in our culture today. It's very unhealthy and very lazy to just say, this is just cancel culture. It, it takes a, a lot more uh, digging, 
a lot more discovery, a lot more uh, investigating, and a lot more nuance before we begin to come to this conclusion that it's just cancel culture run amok. I think it's lazy. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't cases where people do just lazily say, I just want to eradicate this person uh, from the face of the earth. I want to eradicate the influence of this person, and I never want to see or hear from them again. Now, that needs to be dug into as well. Because the bigger question we have to ask is, if that version of cancel culture is real, is God for that? Or is God for something different? We need to ask ourselves, do we think, or when I call something cancel culture, am I really, am I really just taking issue with a culture of consequences? And then if that is true, is that what God is for? What I'd like us to do is move from this kind of lazy title of cancel culture to a culture of consequence. And then once we land there, say, okay, now what does God do with a culture of consequences? What should be the goal of, of, of those who follow a God that has created a culture of consequences. What's the ultimate goal of the consequence? It's not enough to just say consequences. That's something that uh, we all grew up in. If you grew up with parents who are trying to uh, uh, teach you and educate you and discipline you, things, choices have consequences. You make a choice, you have consequences. We got to live with those, right? But God takes us a step further as well. So the best example, I think, in Scripture of someone that might uh, 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 maybe hold to a very unhealthy kind of cancel culture view and, and, and maybe even not think through what consequences should lead to or not think through God's purpose for consequences is Jonah. Jonah might be, uh, if you wanted somebody that you would call the cancel culture prophet, it might be Jonah in a very unhealthy way not in a way that I believe we should be about. And so as we read through Jonah, it's four chapters, but really it's about 40-something verses. It's a small book, and it's, it's such an interesting narrative. We're going to read through this. And as we read through it, I want us to look at a few things that pop out. I want, I want you to be thinking about, A, who Jonah is. How do you see yourself in Jonah? How do we see ourselves in Jonah? And ask ourselves this question. I'm going to ask it again at the end. To whom could God show mercy and you would still be angry? Who could God show mercy to and you would still be so angry because all you wanted to do is see them receive consequences and not mercy? And then the purpose for that mercy, genuine restoration. That's what we're going to see here. So let's start <clears throat> with the first chapter and we'll pull back and talk about that and we'll keep going. Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to God. They threw the ship's cargo in the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots 
Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what is this that you have done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm the blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's stop here for a moment and let's just look at a few distinctives that appear in this first chapter of Jonah. So you've got Jonah, and, and in order to understand a little bit about Jonah, Jonah is this prophet that God has spoken to and God is going to speak through. That was the role of the prophets. If we remember, the role of a prophet was to represent the heart and the mind of God to the people, not to be confused with a priest who represents the people to God. So Jonah here has been called, has been summoned, has been appointed by God. And he calls him. The very first few verses, we see him calling Jonah. Jonah, uh, uh, by, by definition in the Hebrew, Yonah uh, means uh, dove. And it's interesting because in many ways, his name, his full name, Jonah, dove, son of Amittai. It's actually where we get the name Emmet from. It just means truth. Son of truth. I guess his daddy's name was truth. That's quite a name. And so Jonah here is known as you're someone who's supposed to be the son of truth. You should be the purveyor of truth. And I'm giving you truth to go speak to other people. Go and do it. And the first reaction Jonah has, it doesn't even look like he even considers it. God says, get up. Go to the great, meaning kind of large and hugely influential city of Nineveh and go preach against it because their evil has come up before me. So what is he saying? Jonah, go preach a message of judgment. Don't get it twisted. God is still about consequences, right? God is still about the things that you have done have, have harmed your image bearers. When you, if you want to go back to our sermon on Jonah, a whole series we've done, you learned a lot about the city of Nineveh and what they were infamous for, the way that they treated strangers, the way that they treated uh, immigrants into their community, the way that they treated people that they thought were, were wrong or weren't uh, glorifying their kingdom well. Some of the horrific things they did, they were well-known, very powerful. And so Jonah knows, okay, you're calling me to go preach judgment to them. Now, you would think Jonah would be excited to do this because we're going to find out later, Jonah has a strong view about uh, what he thinks should happen to these folks. And so he's, getting, he's, gonna go, he's being told to go preach a message of judgment for their sin. In other words, God is definitely about consequences. God is definitely about you have missed the mark. You have not turned away from missing the mark. Here is what will happen now. That's always, God is always a God of consequence. And so Jonah gets that word and you would think he would go, okay, hey, listen, you're the God of everything. You've created everything. I'm, I'm in. I'm going. Yes, sir. I'm going. 
But that's not what he does. Instead, he looks at his situation and he says, let's see, here I am. Uh, uh, Nineveh is about 500 miles away. By the way, Nineveh is modern day Mosul in Iraq. And so uh, Nineveh is this place that he's like, I'm not going that far. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to go to Tarshish. I'm going to go the complete different direction because I just don't, I don't like what I think is going to happen here. I know what I, what I think should happen to those people, but I don't think I'm going to like what you're going to choose to do with those people because I want them done. I just want them canceled. I want them through. But I have a feeling that's not what you're going to do. And we're going to find out that's exactly what he thinks. Chapter four. So here he is. He decides to go the opposite direction. He decides to disobey God, to rebel against God, largely because he doesn't want to see God be God. He doesn't want to see God show the fullness of his nature because he doesn't like what the outcome is going to be for the people he views as his enemies. So he says, I'm going the opposite way. So he does. Spends the money, gets on a ship, goes the opposite direction. And in his rebellion, in his disobedience, in his willful disobedience, in his willful ignorance, he gets on this Boat goes down to the belly of the boat, the bottom of the boat, and is able to sleep soundly. That's what it says. A massive storm is going on, and Jonah is asleep in the ship. Now, I have to stop here, and I've talked about this before, but I have to say this as an aside, but it's a vital thing to remember. In our church culture, it is a common thing to evaluate whether or not God is in a decision or whether or not God is approving of the things that we choose to do. It's a common thing to evaluate that based off of how peaceful we feel on the matter. How peaceful, right? To make sure there's no dissonance, nothing stirring up in us. If I feel uh, unbothered by a decision that I've made, then I assume that God co-signs it. But your peace is not the litmus test for God's heart. Your peace is not the litmus test for God's mind. In other words, you can peacefully be wrong. See, Jonah would have said, I decided not to obey God, but I have peace about it. You can't be more peaceful. You can't be, you can't have more peace on a thing than you sleeping soundly through a torrential downpour, a tsunami, a storm on the ocean. You, you can't be more peaceful than that. Jonah had peace about it, and Jonah was peacefully wrong. You see, it's not enough. If you look at Jonah's story, it's not enough to, to it's, it's not enough for you to feel good on the ship. How you feel in the ship is not the litmus test. The direction the ship is going is the litmus test. Jonah's ship was going the wrong direction, but he felt good about it. Reevaluate. When you start thinking about things you're thinking of doing or ways that you feel, if your primary reason for feeling the way you feel and, and feeling like God is in it is because you have peace about it, you need to question that. It's not to say that following God won't bring peace. Just remember, peace doesn't mean you're following God. It's not reversible. Right? It's not interchangeable. The direction of the ship is what should bring us peace. Am I going in line with where God is? Then I'll have peace. doesn't really matter what's happening around me. Uh, I can have peace if I know I'm where God is. If you're peaceful. If you have peace about it, keep asking yourself, 
Am I going in the direction God is? So Jonah here is completely in rebellion to God, but he's got peace about it and he's sleeping. And the folks who are in the ship with him are going, what is going on? There's this storm that's happening. Jonah, how are you asleep? How can you sleep through this? And then they take, they cast lots. They, they, they decide to engage in the scientific method of casting lots. And, and I make that joke because honestly, we could look at that and go, see what, what kind of, that was crazy, right? But God often used these methods back then. We saw him use the, the same method in Acts when they were replacing Judas uh, to find out who the 12th uh, apostle would be, right? So, so they're casting lots to figure out who is the one who is responsible for this, this horrible event that we're in, this cataclysmic event in which we find ourselves. And so the captain, uh, finally, they realize what happened. They realize that it landed on Jonah, and they wake up Jonah, and they basically say, who you with? <laughs> they basically say, where did you come from? Who do you claim? What tribe are you from? What religion are you? What your socioeconomic background? Give us a reason for why we're dealing with this right now. Who is your God? Because they've all done the best they can do. They've prayed to all their gods. They don't really know Yahweh, the true God of the world, but they're doing the best they can with what they have. And now that they've done that, they say, hey, you wake up, pray to your God. We just cast lots, by the way. It landed on you. Explain to us what happened. And Jonah doesn't even lie about it. He doesn't try to uh, mix up anything. He doesn't, uh, he, he's, not, he's not kind of wobbly on his answer. He's very clear. Yeah, I, um, I serve the only God. I serve the only living God. You know, the God that made all this stuff. I think it's interesting the way he words it because he knows they've been praying to all their gods. But he's saying, I serve the God who's made everything. In other words, I serve the only God, the only God with any power. I serve the one true God. And he told me to do some things and I disobeyed him. That's, that's why we're here. He told me to do something very clearly, very expressly to do something. And I just didn't do it. And so I, I came out this way and they're going, what have you done? Cause they, they made it, he made it clear to them. They're like, what have you done? You do realize really quickly your sinful decisions, our sinful decisions affect other people, not just us. You're never just alone in your ship. No matter how you feel, no matter what you're going through, you are never just alone in your ship. There are always people in the ship that stand to suffer because of your sinful decisions, because of your sinful rebellion. And so they're looking at Jonah going, you got in this ship willingly disobeying God, rebelling against God. Did you not realize what was gonna happen to us? What have you done to us? Once they saw that he was fleeing from God, they were like, well, what do we do? How do we fix this? And Jonah's response is interesting. He's, he almost just seems just resigned and consigned to his own fate. And he's like, well, listen, the best choice y'all have is to just throw me over, to the, over the side of the boat, throw me into the ocean, cast me out, leave me for dead. And their response is also very interesting because their response is not to do it. Their response is actually very merciful. As a matter of fact, as we go through this story, the most merciful people in the story are the people that are in the ship with Jonah, not Jonah. In many ways, Jonah receives mercy from people that he would never offer mercy to. He gets mercy from these folks because they're like, we don't want to throw you over. So they decide instead to try to make their way to shore, right? They start kind of rowing their way to shore. In the Hebrew, it means they're digging their way through the ocean in a way, digging through the water to get to shore. And as they're trying, it's just to no avail. These efforts are futile and they realize we can't do anything else. Now, something has happened here where their hearts, they're believing in the one true God now because they're, they immediately begin to pray. 
they immediately begin to pray really for God's mercy on them for what they're going to have to do. Remember their words. They're saying, Lord, don't, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Please don't put his blood on our hands. We're just trying to do the best we can to survive. We realize that he has done what he's done. Please give us mercy. Please show mercy on our souls. And so they, they throw him over the water. And they throw him overboard into the water. And they keep on moving. It's interesting because here they are trying to show him mercy, trying to spare his life. They realize they have no other choice, but their hearts have been turned toward God, even in Jonah's rebellion. That just tells you a lot about how sovereign God is, right? Even in your bad decision-making, God still is Lord of it. And God still somehow uses even your consequences in the redemption of other people. Now, I don't know about you, I don't want to be the object lesson where my consequence has to teach you a lesson, right? I would rather just us following God in wisdom and not having to go through some of those hard things. That's the problem with the axiom that we tend to live by that says experience is the best teacher. It's not necessarily the best teacher. It's an effective teacher, but it's not the wisest teacher. Wisdom is let me learn from the wisdom of others. Let me listen to God first and obey him immediately so that I don't need to go through things in order to learn it better. That was the sin of Adam and Eve, right? This idea of wanting to to get to a place where I can have the knowledge of good and evil so that I can determine whether something is good or bad, so that I can experience it on some level, even intellectually, in order to do it, as opposed to the wisdom of God that says, which is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the wisdom of God, starting with that and going, God, you have declared this as such. I'm going to obey that and follow into that. That's wisdom. We don't need to wait for people to make bad decisions. Yet, Jonah's bad decision was a very effective teacher. And these folks begin to pray out to God. So now we get to the place where Jonah now has been thrown over the boat. He's in uh, the, the water. And eventually, God appoints, as the scripture says, a great fish to swallow Jonah, the belly of which he was in for three days and three nights. You get to chapter two. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This chapter is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, Number one, it's interesting that Jonah, after being cast into the water and being in the belly of this great fish, I know we say a whale, but the scriptures really just says great fish. Um, It's interesting, if it were you, if it were me, I'm pretty sure our prayer would be a prayer of deliverance, right? I'm stuck inside of a fish. I'm slowly being digested by its inner juices. I I don't really want to stay here. I really want out. There's a lot of other food in here, and it's not smelling good either, and it's dark, and it's damp, and it's dank. Lord, I, I really want to be delivered. Give me deliverance. Jonah doesn't pray for deliverance. He gives a prayer of thanksgiving. He just stops and goes, I'm in this fish now. 
but I was just in the waters getting ready to drown. And somehow you rescued me. You saved me. While I just knew I was going to die, I was drowning. I was going to the bottom of the pit. He used this idiom that's often used when people are in on their last legs thinking they're getting ready to die and be separated from life forever, right? This idea of Sheol. And so he's like, I, I was in the pit. I was on my way to death. And you rescued me. I thought I was going to drown. And you rescued me. Jonah's a complex figure because he's just been completely willfully rebellious against God, much like we will be oftentimes. He's just uh, willfully ignored what God told him to do. And not only ignored it, but willfully went the opposite way. And so here he is, like he's already shown, I got willful rebellion. I don't really want to be about your business. I don't want you to, I don't want to go do what you want me to do because I don't think I'm going to like the outcome. And then I did some things that caused people to possibly die. And, and then I was getting ready to die and I was consigned to dying and, and you rescued me. So he prays this prayer of thanksgiving. It just shows that how complex we all are. Because even in prayer, we can be thankful to God and still not want what he wants. You realize that it's very one-sided in that way. I'm so thankful, God, because you gave me the outcome I wanted in that case. But I'm still not wanting to rock with you because you're still going to give an outcome I don't want. And I only want the things that I'm, that I'm for, right? I'm, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily want the things you're for, but I really love it when you want the things that I'm for. I'm for living, and you rescued me. I'm giving you thanks. But that, doesn't, that isn't consistent throughout, right? He's not necessarily thankful for who God is uh, fully. He's just thankful for who God is to him in the moment. And so he prays this prayer of thanksgiving. And in his prayer, he says, and so when I was dying and when I was close to death, that's when I was like, I'm willing, I'm going to sacrifice everything for you. A lot of times that is us, right? We're in our worst possible moments. And that's when we're like, Lord, if, if not that he's wanting to get out of this, but we'll say, if you can get me out of this, I'll serve you forever. You see that in the movies. You see that in books. People will get to that place where it's like, I'm at the, at the end of my rope. And if you can get me out of this, I will serve you. And in some ways he's saying this, right? He's saying, I'm going to fulfill what I vowed. You have rescued me from drowning. I know salvation belongs to you. I'm going to do what you told me to do. And so God commands the fish to uh, uh, vomit Jonah onto dry land. Whether it came out of his mouth or through the blowhole, if it was a whale, I don't know. That'd be quite an interesting story. We don't really know. You get to chapter three, and now you see Jonah moving, right? Jonah's already moved from uh, running away from God to uh, uh, being forced into a position where he had no other choice but to pray to God. Now he's moving into proclaiming what God told him to proclaim. He finally is doing it. So you get to chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. 
Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned away from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. This is, gets right into the crux of what we began with. Jonah basically preaches a message that is a message of consequence. Dare I say, some people would say this is a message of cancellation. You are going to be demolished. There's no worse way to be canceled than to be wiped off the face of the earth. You're going to be canceled. You're going to be demolished. You're going to be done. Why? Because of your sin. Consequence, truly. There are consequences here because you have willfully rebelled, Nineveh. Your, your sin has reached up to the attention of God. God is fully aware of the cries of the people and he has heard them. You are in sin and you are going to be demolished. That's the message, right? That seems like a message of cancellation. That's a message that Jonah wishes would be the only message. Really, Jonah is hoping, Jonah's hoping that they don't turn away. He hopes that this is basically, this isn't really a message of, many times when you're giving a message, you can give a message that's just informational or you give a message that is transformational. Every person who's communicating the heart of God should have a desire to communicate in such a way that leads to transformation, not just a transfer of information. But what Jonah really wanted, he just wanted to transfer a message of judgment. He wanted to transfer a message of condemnation. You're wrong, you're canceled, I'm so glad you're gonna be wiped off the face of the earth. That's the message he wanted to give. Can you not relate to that? Can you not think of people that might be willfully, uh, willfully in sin, willfully in rebellion? By that I mean people who are willfully doing things, perpetuating things, perpetuating ideas that are harmful to other people. This is not a question about interpretation. Well, I think it might be, well, some people might see it this way. No, you can directly tie a line between things that people are doing, saying, believing, that are directly harming and possibly killing image bearers. Can you not think of those folks? Okay, get those people in your mind. And you think about just how bold they are about their sin, how bold they are about not displaying the heart of God, how bold they are about defaming and blaspheming image bearers of God. And you know that they deserve judgment. They deserve because they're completely in sin. They are not loving their neighbor well. Okay, picture that person. And God tells you, Go to them and give them a message of transformation. Ultimately, when, you put our, when we put our posts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everything else, many times all those things are messages of information. The goal of those messages at many times is just only to condemn without the hope that maybe this message will cause real transformation. Because if or when some folks begin to transform, how are you inclined to respond? If somebody were to truly say, I am completely moved, I realize that the heart of God has not been true for me, and I realize I've caused real damage to other people, I'm turning away from this. I'm turning away from this. I can say personally, it has been really hard, even in the times that we're in, as we look at issues of racial injustice, if we look at issues of gender discrimination, as we look at issues of people who are not treated fairly, regardless of where they are, color, creed, orientation, all these things, image bearers being horribly treated, right? People from different countries, immigrants, people trying to find a better life, all these things that happen. 
And the way, forget about the best possible way to handle a thing, but the way people are handled or treated are completely not in accordance with what it means to love your neighbor. I get angry about it. I hope you do too. I know God gets angry about it. But the, but the question is, the moment you communicate a message, and there's nothing wrong with communicating the message, right? There's nothing wrong with saying what Jonah said. Hey, what you're doing offends God, and God doesn't take kindly to that. God is likely going to judge that. Now, he hasn't told us specifically what to say to people, but here he did. But we can know for sure God's heart is, I am against those who harm other people, who, who are unjust to other people. My nostril flares against injustice. I hate it, as he says in Proverbs, right? So, so it's an abomination to me. So giving that information is one thing. But, but for me, there have been times, especially now, where I just feel like I don't even, is it worth it? Sharing information. Is it worth it? Tra trying to share the heart of God. Is it worth it? Going to people that maybe didn't listen the first time, the second time, the third time. And I'm sure people have wondered that about me in areas of my own life. Is it worth it? Continually trying to work with this person because they don't seem to get it. Is it worth it? It's always worth it if the heart is transformation. It's not going to feel worth it if it's all about information. Because the moment they don't appear to be informed based off of your message, you're going to feel like it was a waste of time. But the, but the truth of the matter is, if what is being said, if the goal is not just to make people informed, but the goal is to make them transformed, that's the difference between what it means to be about a this, this toxic idea of a cancel culture versus a consequence culture. Because the goal of consequences is not, uh, is not just punishment. The goal of uh, consequences is not retribution. The goal of consequences is restoration. So as believers, as people who follow Jesus, as people who claim to love God, and sometimes it's barely hanging on. For me, sometimes it's barely hanging on. But the goal has got to be, Lord, I want to communicate your heart, even if it's anger, even if it's uh, 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 stuff that's not good, even if it's a message people don't necessarily want to hear. I still have to boldly proclaim truth. But Lord, I pray that you would work on my heart so that my ultimate desire is not your retribution for people, but my desire would be your restoration of people. That's the goal. That should have been the goal for Jonah. Jonah didn't want to see these folks transformed. He wanted to see them informed about coming doom. And so when God hears these folks, think about what happened. These folks immediately converted on varying levels. We don't know specifically what, but these folks were, they heard this. They heard what uh, Jonah told them. Judgment's coming. They knew why. You know, when you're honest with yourself, people shouldn't even have to break down all the ways that you've been sinful. If you're honest, you can kind of start to see, oh yeah, this, 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 and that. So you have the king of Nineveh. Clearly, the moment he hears it, he sees his other people already turning and he hears about it. And they do the best they can. They're like, well, let's do, let's repent with what we have. This is a great example of repentance, right? Same example we see, we always quote 2 Corinthians 7, 8, 9, and 10, what it means to, to be exhaustive about clearing ourselves in the matter. At every point, wanting to clear ourselves in the matter. Mourning with a godly mourning. Not just mourning consequences or pending consequences, but mourning our sin against God. And this is what they do. They do so much, they go overboard. 
they do what a lot of people do when they got too much money. They're putting sweaters on dogs. They're putting sackcloth all over animals and mules and goats and emus. I don't know if they had emus, but maybe they did. And they're putting sackcloth on them because they're like, hey, we're mourning and our animals are mourning, as if those animals could really mourn the actual sin. But, but that's what they're doing. They're going overboard. That's what it means to exhaustively repent. You do things that may not even make sense, but you're like, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to mistake my heart on this. I want to look clean on every aspect. I want to look like I'm turning on every aspect. And somehow this message transformed them. And Jonah didn't want to see them be transformed. We often don't want to see people be transformed. You know how to identify Nineveh today. But do you want to see them transformed? Look at Jonah's response. Jonah chapter four, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious God and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there, and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and he grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. He replied, I'm angry. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And then the story ends. I think it's the only part of scripture, the only book of the Bible that ends in a rhetorical question. We get no answer. We kind of know the answer, but we get no answer. Jonah responds, think about this. We say, I love God. God, I love you. I want to be about you. I want to be, I want to love the things you love. I want to be for the things you're for. I, I want to see your attributes emulated and manifested in every aspect of my life. That's the God that I want to serve. And that's the God I want to look like. And that's the God that I love. I say I love mercy. But the truth of the matter is, I love mercy for me and judgment for other people. I love grace for me and punishment for other people. I love heaven for me and hell for other people. That's where Jonah is. Specifically, if we got even more specific, I love grace for me. I love judgment for my enemies. I love heaven for me. I love hell for my enemies. That's Jonah. How do we know? Because anytime we see God's mercy, we should be rejoicing. Anytime we see God's grace, we should be rejoicing. Because that is that not is that not the mission of God? Is that not the mission that he hatched from the time that we saw Genesis 3? Is that not the first thing that happened when God hatched a plan to buy back those who have been lost to sin? Is that not God's plan to reconcile all things to himself, all people to himself? His plan is to restore. How can you be angry at God for restoring? 
That's where Jonah is. He became greatly displeased and became furious. And then you know, going back to chapter one, this is how you know why he was angry and why he fled in the first place. No, he did. some people wonder, did he flee because he heard about how horrible the Ninevites were and he thought he was going to be hurt? That's not why he fled. That's not the reason why he disobeyed. He disobeyed largely because he didn't want to see God be God. I knew you were going to be merciful. I knew you were going to show love. And those people don't deserve love. And then, please understand, this isn't like the, the, some people who just see people for racial reasons or, or, or gender reasons or, or country of origin reasons and go, I'm going to treat them different because they're from a different culture. That's not this. This is, uh, on the surface of it, Jonah's argument, right, is rooted in fact. Hey, those people are wicked. Those people have disobeyed you, God. I can empirically prove that they are actually in sin. This isn't like some super, superficial reason for why I'm, I don't rock with them. They legitimately are against you, and they legitimately are against me, right? So he's got reasons, but here's the problem. His goal was to see even legitimate sinners. He wanted to see them never have a chance at restoration. So he was angry. God, when you told me to go to them, the reason why I didn't go is because I knew you were going to show them mercy, and I didn't want to see mercy. I just want to see judgment. So I fled. I know that you're gracious. I know you're compassionate. I know you're slow to anger. You know why? Because Jonah and we are the opposite of these things. We aren't naturally gracious. We aren't often naturally compassionate. We're definitely not slow to anger. Jonah wasn't. He said, I knew that you were somebody who would relent from sending disaster. So just typical, all you have to do is use basic context clues. We know then he wanted the opposite. I wanted you to be quick to bring disaster. I wanted you to be quick to bring judgment on them. Now, is God a God of judgment? Has God brought disaster to people? Yes, <clears throat> he absolutely has. And in every situation that we see where God has brought disaster and complete and utter eradication of people, it's been in cases where people have been unrepentant. That's the reason why we don't take his grace for granted. We don't know how long his grace will last when we are in unrepentant sin. So if you want to call that consequence, you want to call that cancel, call it whatever, there are consequences for unrepented sin. And so, and so Jonah really, his big thing was, I'm scared they're going to repent. And if they repent, I know you're going to show mercy. How crazy is that? That you can preach a mercy, you can preach a gospel, preach a message of God that requires repentance and then secretly pray, I hope they don't repent because I really want them to, to be eviscerated. I want them to see disaster. So he's angry. And God asked the question that we know the answer to. Is it right for you to be angry? Listen, anger is not a sin. I always, I think it's hard sometimes when people are angry <clears throat> and they have a legitimate reason for, for being angry. And then our, uh, oftentimes, our uh, rhetorical tool that we use to respond to them is, you seem really angry, which isn't an argument at all. That doesn't prove anything. The, the idea is always, if you're angry, you must be the one that's wrong. Not true at all. God gets angry. The scripture says, just be angry and don't sin. So that's the reason why God is going, you're angry, but should you be? In other words, is your anger rooted in truth or is your anger rooted in sin? <clears throat> and maybe even more so, is your anger rooted in a godly motive or is it rooted in a sinful motive? Your anger is rooted in a sinful motive because you don't want to see people repent and you don't want to see restoration. You don't want to see them be restored. 
So your motivation is wrong. Your anger is not a godly anger. Jonah, that's the reason why he doesn't answer. It's rhetorical because God already knows. He's reminding him, you know that you're wrong, right? You know that you didn't mess up, right? You know that your, your, your anger is rooted in something wrong, right? And Jonah responds by just running. Actually, he runs in a way where he's like, he runs away. He doesn't re- respond to God, but he runs away to a close nearby spot so he can almost get his popcorn and see what happens. You have to almost wonder if Jonah is just kind of sitting there going, all right, maybe their repentance is a fake one. And maybe God is going to, it's almost like I'm giving God one more chance to do what I want him to do. Because I know that he's merciful, but my only hope right now is that they are not truly repentant because I want to see them fully be canceled. I want to see them fully be eradicated. I want those consequences and I want them swiftly. So maybe they don't repent. Maybe they're just faking. Maybe it's all lip service. I hope it's lip service. Let me get my popcorn. Let me get my folding chair. Let me get my nice umbrella. Let me just chill. So that's kind of what God gave him. He gets his, he sets himself up and he sits back on wherever he is to look down on Nineveh and get a first row view of hopefully destruction that will come. And God, some people might say this is kind of petty, but I think it's really funny. God is like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a front row seat and I'll make sure that you're shielded from the sun so you can get perfect view, a perfect view, completely not distracted by the sun's rays of people being restored. So he sits there and he watches. You just imagine him popping popcorn and then stopping and throwing the bowl down mad like, where's the, where's the fire? Where's the brimstone? And maybe bring some enemy armies in there to take him out. Maybe bring a plague and knock him out. Maybe kill all the firstborn. I've heard the stories. Maybe bring a flood to come in. Maybe just, maybe let a river come through and just wipe them out. Something. All right, let, come on, God. I, they can't possibly truly have repented, right? So he watches and he waits. And all of a sudden, God teaches him another lesson and gives him yet another consequence. And all of a sudden, that, that, that vine that had come up, that thing, that leaf that had been protecting him is eaten through. A worm comes and eats it away to remind Jonah, this story is not about you. And this story really, really isn't even about them. This story is about me. This story is about who I am. This story about my heart being put on display. And you should have wanted that. You should have wanted my heart to be on display. And my heart is a heart that wants to restore. My heart is a heart that doesn't just want to punish. I want to see people reconciled. And you should have wanted that, but you didn't. And you thought that even in the good things that happened to you, you must have thought you earned that too. So you acted like you were entitled to this leaf that's protecting you, but you don't realize I'm the God of that as well. You had nothing to do with it being there. You have nothing to do with it not being there. I'm God. I'm sovereign. You should have wanted me more than my stuff. And so he leaves him with that. And Jonah gets to this place where he is so angry. He is angry now. He's like, Lord, why? In other words, you almost see Jonah going, why am I the only one getting consequences? I I listen to you. You talk to me. Clearly, you think something of me because you talk to me. You share truth with me. You want me to go speak for you. Why do I have to be the one that gets the consequences? Why did I have to go be thrown out of a ship in the middle of a storm? Why did I have to be in, in this, in, in, on the insides and the innards of some great fish? Why did I have to go in front of the people that, that could easily kill me? Why did I have to uh, get to a place where I gave them a prophecy and my reputation is on the line? 
You do realize that in the Old Testament, the litmus test for whether or not a prophet was a true prophet was if what they said came true. I just told them in 40 days they were going to be wiped out. You're making me look bad. My reputation is on the line. I can't even, who's going to respect me as a prophet when my prophecy didn't come true? And now you got me out here looking like the old folks used to say, boo-boo the fool. You got me out here looking like somebody who just doesn't know what they're talking about. They're not even going to believe that I, I have a reputation out here. So yeah, I'd rather be dead because everything that's happened, this, this idea of obeying you, I'm not getting what I want out of it. The least I could get is, 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 the, is the joy of revenge and seeing some of your people be wiped out. But no, they get mercy. They get mercy. Yeah, just let me die. And what's interesting is we don't get to a place, even after God asks him again, are you right to be angry about the plant? Again, God lovingly and graciously gives him another opportunity to consider his own sin. The same opportunity he gave to the Ninevites to consider their own sin. The difference is they repented. We don't see any evidence that Jonah repented at all. Jonah's the only prophet in scripture that we see with no evidence of repentance, which says a lot of things. What happened to Jonah? We don't know. There's a lot of tradition that says Jonah was buried in Nineveh. Matter of fact, there's a very famous area in Iraq, in Mosul, where uh, it was a, it's famously known as the tomb of Nineveh. And actually, a couple of years ago, uh, the terrorist group ISIS came and destroyed that tomb. But, but uh, for history tells us that that's where he died, and that's where his body remained. We don't really know what happened to him. But I think that the reason why God leaves this story here for us is to say, you can be close to God, you can believe you hear from God, you can even speak for God and not be for Him. You can, you can uh, communicate His truth and be so far from His heart. You can peacefully rebel against Him while knowing Him and be so far from His heart. And what God is showing us here is in the midst of everything, in the midst of what we might call cancel culture, the goal should always be, God, I'm going to boldly speak your truth. And when things are wrong, we should boldly call them out, however divisive they might seem. Truth divides. We talked about that. I'm going to speak truth and I'm going to call out sin. But my goal, my heart, my prayer is, Lord, may the truth about sin and may the truth about your heart lead to their restoration, lead to their repentance, because that's when your name is made famous. It's not just made famous by who you destroy. It's made more famous by who you restore. And I want that, God. That should be our heart. That should be where we are. But Jonah simply says, nope, I'm still right for being angry. I'd rather just die. And, this, and it's interesting because God ends this story by saying, you don't, you don't get it, do you? You don't get it. I have a heart for the people. There's over 120,000 people there. There's even animals there, which is interesting that God still does care about his own creation, even in the animals. He didn't have to bring them up. He didn't have to quote them, but he actually did say there's 120,000 people who can't distinguish between their right and their left. In other words, there are people who need truth. There are people who are, their sin is rooted in ignorance. They need to be told. Now, if the truth is brought before them and they deny it, we saw what Jesus told his disciples. Kick your sandals off, kick the dust off, and keep it moving. 
If people willingly don't want to hear the truth, you're not forced to have to stay. You're not forced to be in their face. You're not forced to have to take whatever's happening. But if I command you to go bring the truth to them, your heart should be, Lord, I know that they're ignorant. I know that they don't have the truth. I know that they don't understand what the truth is. They do horrific things. There's no question. And a lot of what they do is rooted in an ignorance, rooted in a large distance, this chasm between them and you. And if I can bring truth that would help to bridge that gap, Lord, use me to do that because I want to see them restored. I don't want to see them punished. And God ends with reminding him, there's 120,000 image bearers. And there are other lives, animal lives that I've created, right? In, in creation that I want to see stewarded well. They are so wicked, they don't even steward their animals well. I'm about stewardship of all things. Can you not steward my message well? And Jonah, we're left rhetorically with the answer of no. So where are you? Honestly, right now, when you think about whoever Nineveh is to you, where are you? And let me add this. At what times are you Nineveh? At what times are you a Ninevite? At what times are we uh, in this kind of obstinate place of, of uh, uh, we just refuse to move? We're not malleable, right? We are in, in, this, in this space of I, I, I don't want to move. I don't want to change. I don't want to be challenged at all. And so I, I, I'm in this place of, of uh, just recalcitrance. I, I just want to revolt against even being called out because I don't want to move. I don't want to change. I don't like the message that's being brought. We've got to, we've got to identify ourselves and locate ourselves in, in many times Jonah's story and the Ninevite story. Because ultimately, if you're on Jonah's side and you have the truth, the question is, what is the purpose of truth? Is the truth there to inform or is it to transform? Are you seeking transformation? Or are you just seeking punishment? And then as, as an Ninevite, are you seeking to be transformed? Or is just information that you don't like enough to just ignore and continue to walk in our sin? This is who God is. This is what Jesus came to do. When Jesus came, he came not just to save us from hell, he came to transform us. He came to transform us. He came, we see the scripture says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's things that we think that need to change. And the only way we are thinking changes is when we hear God's word and his spirit illuminates our understanding. And we get to a place where we go, oh my goodness, I am so far from God. That message that I just heard about my own sin, I'm convinced that I'm far from God. I want to turn back to him. I want to see real change happen in me. That's what we should be moving toward. That's what Jesus came to do. So when we hear the message, what does Hebrews tell us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That, that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. What message are we hearing? And is that message something that's just informative or transformative? Do we have God's heart for transformation? Are we about just a, a toxically kind of uh, this idea of canceling without restoration? Or are we about God's view of consequence with the hope of restoration? That's where God is. That's where God wants us to be. So where are you? Spend some time. Spend some time evaluating where you are on that line between Jonah and Nineveh. Find out where your heart is in terms of information and transformation. Because at the end of the day, we serve a God that has started and will completely finish a plan that is not about canceling, that is about using the consequences of our sin 
to bring us to a place of restoration because he has promised to make all things new. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are a God of mercy. You are a God of love. You are a God that seeks genuine restoration. Not only do you seek it, but you created a plan to bring it. Not only do you bring it, but you empower us to live it out. And so God, while we don't know whatever happened, whatever became of Jonah, Father, I pray that in the areas where we have this misguided heart that Jonah clearly had, Father, will you convict us of that? And in your convicting, will you convince us that your way is better? That not just looking, we know our sin and our flesh, we want revenge. We want to see punishment. And we don't just want to see punishment for uh, surface-based stuff. We have legitimate reasons for being frustrated by injustice. And we have legitimate reasons for being frustrated with people who have harmed us. We have legitimate reasons for that. But God, may we be a people. May you impart your spirit into us in such a way that when you, when your word goes forth and people are pressed in and they are uh, convicted and cut to the core, that they move into a place of genuine repentance, a genuine repentance that produces genuine fruit and a genuine repentance that leads to genuine restoration. May we be about that work. God, let us move from a, a place of either lazily labeling being called out for a sin is just cancel culture. May we completely move away from that and think through a God of consequence and a God of restoration. We know that that is your heart. We know that is your kingdom. So we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move uh, to this next phase, we think through not just who God is and what God has promised to do, and what God has called us to. But we need to be reminded of what God reminded uh, Jonah, that I'm the one who is the author and the finisher of all these things. I'm the one that has done, that has uh, brought the, the things that you have that are providing shade for you, I did that. I'm sovereign over that. It's not because you necessarily deserved it, it's because I decided to bring these things in. I am the one that holds your salvation together. I'm the one that did the work to redeem you, and I'm the one that has done the work to keep you. So when we go to a place where we spend time at the Lord's table, we spend time partaking in communion, ultimately what we're doing is we're saying we, we know and we proclaim the one who holds us in his hand. We proclaim, we remember, and we experience the grace of God even in the partaking that God is the author and finisher of our faith and he holds it tightly and he promises to keep us until that day when he fully restores us. So when you come, whenever we partake of communion, what we're ultimately saying is, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I am constantly aware of the sin in my heart that looks like Jonah and the sin in my heart that looks like Nineveh. And honestly, maybe I'm not constantly aware because then I end up becoming aware of the ways I overlooked it at times. That's where my repentance comes in. Anytime I'm in a place where I'm looking more like Jonah or Nineveh, I'm realizing that there's real sin in my heart. And the fact that Jesus came and died for that sin, that sin that would otherwise separate me from God or has separated me from God or might even be separating me right now, then this is a time for me. Taking uh, communion is a time for me 
to stop and go, Lord, I, I see my sin. Or Lord, will you show me my sin? Show me my sin. Maybe a sin that doesn't want to be called out. And so I just, again, lazily say, oh, you just cancel culture. Don't talk to me about that. Or maybe I'm a person that only wants to cancel without seeing restoration. Lord, will you root that out in me now? When we come to the table, this is why it's a grace of God on display, because this is the only time, oftentimes, where we can stop, be forced to think, and forced to reflect, and then hopefully get to a place where we do what the Ninevites did, that Jonah doesn't seem to have done, to repent. Take this time now. Lord, I see where sin is, whether individually or corporately. I see where I've run away. I see where I've heard your word and gone the opposite way. I've seen where I've been angry at your own mercy. I've seen where I've wanted punishment for others and mercy for me. I see that. But I also know that you came to even restore me from that. You don't leave me there. I can come boldly and tell you, Lord, I messed up. Lord, my heart is broken. My heart is wicked desperately. I need it to be changed again and again and again. So when we come and partake of these elements, when we partake of the bread and juice or wine, when we partake of these elements, what we're saying is, God, you, your body and your blood is the only thing that restores me. It's the only thing that keeps me. It's the only thing in which I place my trust because that body was not only broken, that body was not only pierced, but that body was, was raised. And in the raising, I was raised with you. In the raising, the promise of genuine redemption was solidified. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup. Jesus took this cup and he, he said, this cup, this is my blood. The blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul says that as often as we do this, every time we do this, we remember the Lord's death until he returns. Why are we remembering this? Because ultimately what we're remembering is we're seeing a picture, not of cancellation. We're seeing a picture of consequence and restoration. We're reminded over and over again that the consequence of sin is the death of Jesus. And Jesus being resurrected proved because Jesus wouldn't be canceled, we won't be canceled. So, so every time we do this, we are proclaiming God is good and God is not the God of just lazy cancellation. He is a God of consequence that leads to genuine restoration. And we get to be reminded of it over and over and over again because that's where our hope is. That's where our truth is. That's where our joy is. So may that be your joy today. Receive the benediction of God now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. May all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.